okay. In uh, on March sixth, nineteen ninety four, we had our first fax machine installed. <laughs> Welcome to Unboxing Queer History, a podcast from Gerber Hart Library and Archives. Gerber Hart is a library and archive with collections that focus on LGBTQ culture and history of Chicago and the Midwest. I want more people to know about it and know just what a depth of history it has. This episode brings you the history of Gerber Hart as we dive into how this queer library and archive came to be and the larger movement it was part of in its inception. We've got Erin Bell. Hey, my name is Erin. I'm a volunteer at Gerber Hart and I've been with Gerber Hart for about four years. So you love libraries? Well, yes, I'm actually a librarian full time. <laughs> and John D'Amelio, telling us the story of Gerber Hart and how archives and actually queer history and studies has movement building and queer liberation at its core. My name is John D'Amelio. I'm a historian by profession and training, taught for many years at UIC in Chicago before retiring. And I've written a number of books on LGBTQ history and the history of sexuality. One of the efforts that started getting made early when people who were doing cultural or intellectual work started getting together was that finding our history is going to be a tool for liberation. My initial question was, who are Gerber and Hart? Henry Gerber was the founder of the Chicago Society for Human Rights in 1924, and that was the first gay rights organization in the United States. Unfortunately, a year after he'd created it, a friend of a friend blabbed to, you know, the powers that be, and it was immediately shut down. And his career as a mail carrier was instantly ended, and he kind of had to go into hiding. But he continued to mentor young gay individuals and, you know, help them achieve their goals in changing the world. Pearl M. Hart was... In 1914, admitted to the bar uh, as a lawyer, a woman lawyer in 1914. And she spent her career defending gay rights. She was involved in the founding of the Mattachine Organization. Okay, so take us through it. Like, what, how did Gerber Hart come to be? And what is Gerber Hart? Gerber Hart was officially opened to the public on January 30th, 1981. So this year, 2021, is its 40th anniversary, which is so awesome. It started in the late 70s as kind of a dream project by some really, really involved LGBTQ leaders at the time in Chicago who just really wanted there to be an institution to retain and protect LGBTQ history. One of the people was Gregory Sprague. They wanted to not only have a lending library of LGBTQ materials that you just you could not find anywhere outside of a specialty bookstore or like your friend's house. So it started in this basement and then it kind of like moved around a little from place to place, but then it slowly started moving up north. And it was in Edgewater for a long time. And 
it was just this staple of like what we know as Andersonville, like that whole area. And a big part of what made Gerber Hart so successful was the collaborations with other uh, institutions like People Like Us and Women and Children First and all of the gay bars. And just they would have all these cross promotions and people were just genuinely excited about Gerber Hart. They knew that there were all of these LGBTQ people in Chicago and in the Midwest that just were keeping boxes of stuff in their basement, in their attic, and they needed a place to go and no other libraries or institutions were taking them at the time. I mean, you know, things like that were burned. Things like that were just, they were treated like they were perverted and then bam, like the AIDS crisis happens And just comes out of like nowhere in very shortly after this library idea came out and just everything LGBTQ is treated like poison. People were excited to have a place where they could bring their loved ones things, their partners things, their own work and know that it was going to be protected and that future queer people could find it and make use of it. In the late 70s, there was a growing network of individuals scattered across the country in different cities who were in touch with each other and were trying to make LGBT history a force for change as part of the movement. One of the people that I knew was Greg Sprague, who lived in Chicago and was a graduate student in history at the University of Chicago. And Greg had founded a Chicago gay and lesbian history project. And at a certain point, he mentioned that his history project had joined up with another local organization in town, the Gerber Hart Library. And now they had both a library and an archives. And that was so exciting, not only to have a history project and an archives, but that a circulating library was part of it as well. It was really, in 1981, this was on the cutting edge of LGBTQ history. In the 1970s, one of the very frequently stated themes of the oppression was silence and invisibility. That queer people, however you identified, were not part of US culture and society, uh, were not seen, were not heard from. And one of the efforts that started getting made early when people who were doing cultural or intellectual work started getting together was that finding our history is going to be a tool for liberation. I was living in New York in the 70s, and two of the things that I remember very, very early, first in 1973, meeting Jonathan Ned Katz, who was in the process of doing the research for what became the book, Gay American History. And through an organization called the Gay Academic Union, I met Deb Adele and Joan Nessel, who were in the process of founding the Lesbian History Archives in New York, which still exists almost 40 years later. I think what's important for me is not assimilation. I'm someone who believes, one, I choose to be the way I am. I was not born this way. I want civil rights on the basis and dignity of choice. 
and I don't want to be like everybody else. I love making love to women. I met Jonathan. I was so inspired by what he was doing that I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a dissertation on gay history. I didn't know what that meant, but I decided I was going to do it. And as I said, in the course of the 1970s, there were few enough of, few of us who were doing this that we found each other slowly. And some of us were, like me, graduate students trying to get started in the academic world. Some were community-based people, like Deb Adele or Jonathan Katz or Alan Barabay in San Francisco. So it was an interesting combination of people who saw intellectual work as being an essential part of a liberation movement. In 1979, there was the first March on Washington of the LGBTQ movement and community. And knowing that a bunch of us were going to be going to DC, this network of historians said, well, let's have a meeting together. And so a couple of dozen of us met for the first time. Many of us didn't know each other. And it was very exciting just to know that, you know, I could talk about my research. Greg could talk about his research. Uh, Joan could talk about the archives. It was revolutionary, it felt like. In the early 1980s, for most LGBT people, to go to a bookstore and buy a book like this, or to go to your public library and take out a book like this was a form of coming out. And most people did not want to take the risk of coming out. Like, well, who would take out this book on lesbian literature but a, a, a lesbian? You know, I mean, that was the feeling and what might happen to you. And so a circulating library was quite an innovative idea. Here is a place where you can come. It's safe. No one will ever know. Our collection keeps growing. And so the Gerberhart Library. When it then hooked up with the Chicago History Project, it then began a process that has now continued for 40 years of slowly acquiring what in the profession we would call archival collections, boxes, folders of documents that individuals had accumulated through their work as an activist or as a member of the community. Gerberhardt has hundreds of collections of material now that are available to researchers and that document uh, a Chicago and to some extent greater Midwest history of the community and its politics. Perhaps in one or two other places, there was a circulating library, but in many ways, the library quality is and feature is one of the things that makes Gerber Hart relatively unique. One of the things that I remember very, very distinctly about both my first visit and a few visits after that is that even though I had a huge collection of queer books in my own apartment and had written some and, you know, had been buying books and reading books and doing history forever, the experience 
of walking up and down the aisles of shelves in Gerber Hart, looking at the Library of Congress catalog numbers and realizing that the only books that I'm seeing are LGBTQ. It was like an experience, it, well, it wasn't like, it was an experience I had never had before. And, and that continued for a while. And one of the things that I really love about Gerber Hart and that is still true today, even in the year 2021, is especially when younger people, you know, high school students, a college class, come to Gerber Hart, even though we're living in a much more open era, I, when I see the looks on their faces as they walk down the aisles of bookshelves, it's amazing. It's like they have never seen this before, and it is incredibly exciting. The major reason for having something like Gerber Hart as an archive and a historical society is that in the 1980s, when it got started, there was almost no organized documentation of queer life anywhere. You could maybe go to a major place like the New York Public Library or the National Archives and come upon some materials almost by accident because they were buried in another collection. But these mainstream institutions were not collecting LGBTQ materials. And so the only way to guarantee that this material documenting our history would get preserved and saved and be made available for future research was by communities taking the initiative to make it happen. And so that's the motivation behind something like Gerber Hart. Now, because it's also, for most of its years, has been a completely voluntary, volunteer organization you know, on a th very thin budget, it, it can't do what Yale University or Princeton University does and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy someone's personal papers and collections. It really depends on people donating their materials. And often, you know, the materials that you're looking for are not of people who are famous. Mostly they're not. It's people in the community who have been an activist or uh, are cultural producers or bu a business owner or something like that. And so it's a very slow process of both putting the word out, saying, we're here, we want your materials, and then actually, and this is the challenge, actually getting folks to realize, oh, all these boxes that I have in my closet, they're valuable. They could be of use to someone in the future. I should donate them to Gerber Hart. So, you know, some effort gets made to do proactive outreach, but it's limited. I think in most people's minds, history is still about the important people, the people who make headlines, people with 
privilege and money and, uh, and power in a formal sense. And so somebody who was a volunteer for years at a main community organization and collected their newsletters and has copies of the minutes of meetings and and clipped the articles in the local paper about what the group had did. They th this is of interest to them. They don't automatically realize, oh, this will help us in future decades reconstruct what happened in the 1980s or the 1990s. And so that it needs to be cultivated and worked at continuously to remind people that your experience potentially is part of a community and a movement's history, even if you don't think of it that way. When I first started using Gerber Hart, we, well, we have two different kinds of collections. There are the archives, which, you know, uh, the papers of the Gay and Lesbian Coalition of Metropolitan Chicago, uh, or the papers of William Kelly. But then we also have uh, collections that are of published materials, but materials that, you know, not everyone would have. And so I spent a lot of time for a number of years going through the old newspapers from Chicago that go back to the 70s and organizational newsletters, some of which go back even to the 1960s. And in those newsletters and, and newspapers, finding enough material that I then started writing up um, for a while in Windy City Times, a history column that would tell a different story of LGBT history. And that was, it was endless. You could have, it would have been, I probably did maybe 12 or 15 of them, but you know, if I had the time and the patience, I probably could have done scores of them. Then at a certain point, I decided that I really wanted to look into the archives and, and look into it specifically for the purpose of writing things up that would encourage more people to get excited about an archives. And so for a while, I was doing a blog post on the outhistory.org website. And each one was about a different collection in Gerber Hart. So for instance, we have the papers of someone named Melissa Ann Mary. She was a bisexual activist in Chicago. Going through her collection, allowed me to tell a story of how bisexual activism, both in Chicago and nationally, really exploded in size in the, from the mid-80s to the early 90s, and partly under the pressure of the AIDS epidemic. And, and then it just became contagious. It just spread and spread and spread. So, you know, I began doing that kind of research and, and writing it up. And it was very exciting. It really demonstrated all of the things you could find out. In the early years of the AIDS epidemic, it received very little attention. When it did, it was about, oh, those horrible people, the homosexuals. 
And then there began being stories about, well, what if it spreads into what was called the general population? You know, those people are getting AIDS, men who have sex with men. But what if they succeed in spreading it into the general population? And although the word wasn't used often in the mainstream media, what they were referring to, of course, are bisexuals, men, in this case, men, who have sex with both men and women. And so they became, in the national imaginary, as journalism was writing about AIDS, they became the monsters that are threatening all of us you know, with this deadly disease. And that provided a spark. I mean, there was definitely bisexual organizing before this, but bisexuals were often ostracized by the lesbian and gay movement in the 70s. But in this period of time, after the mid 80s, they really begin organizing in a large way uh, to present who they really are, to counter the stereotypes, and the accusations and things like that. This is amazing. We wouldn't have this history without the papers of Melissa and Mary. From the outside looking in are just random notes and flyers. But to folks like me and John, Mary's collection is pivotal. She was an activist in both a local organization and national organization. She collected newsletters, she, from, from the national organization Binet, uh, she had newsletters from local organizations. In this period of time also, there were a number of bi-community uh, newspapers that were published in different cities. She had a wonderful collection of them. She had flyers from demonstrations that were on and things that were distributed, literature. There were also wonderful artifacts like, you know, but, uh, political buttons that you could wear or distribute, as well as some of the t-shirts and things like that. So she had this because she was bisexual and she was actively organizing around it. And at a certain point, because of a relationship she was in, she left Chicago and donated her collection of material to Gerber Hart. And wow, thank you. You know, it would be much harder to write about this if we didn't have your papers. I spent, I would say I spent about a year and a half steadily doing research in the archives. And one of the things that I discovered, and here I am a person who teaches LGBTQ history, has written about it, especially about the movement. One of the things that surprised me that I learned from going through various collections is that there was much more trans organizing and network in the 70s than was visible to most of us. That there already was a community in formation. You know, it didn't have a lot of resources, Organizations came and went very quickly, but there were people out there who were coming together. No, you all tell me to go and hide my tail between my legs. I will not no longer put up with this shit. I have been beaten. I have had my nose broken. I have been thrown in jail. I 
have lost my job. I have lost my apartment for gay liberation. And you all treat me this way? What the fuck's wrong with you all? Think about that. The speech comes from Sylvia Rivera, trans activist. In 1973, Rivera participated in the gay pride parade, but was not allowed to speak despite the amount of work and advocacy she had done. She grabbed the microphone anyway, telling the spectators and other marchers, quote, if it wasn't for the drag queen, there would be no gay liberation movement. We are the frontliners. She was booed off the stage. That speech is referred to as, y'all better quiet down. Since I'm talking about the early 70s, different words were used. So in Chicago, In 1971, there was an organization formed called the Transvestite Legal Committee. And interestingly, and very apropos to the world today, what propelled people, a few people to come, trans people, and almost all of them were trans women, to come together to form this organization was the police murder of an African-American named, the name that we have for the person is James Clay. And Clay was a sex worker who dressed in women's clothing. Now, we don't know enough about him to know how he would have identified himself, but literally he was chased down the street by two Chicago policemen when he was wearing women's clothing and shot in the back and killed. There were protests about it. The city, the police department did nothing about it. And out of this, a group of trans women came together and formed the Transvestite Legal Committee. They did a variety of things. At the most basic, they provided concrete information to people about how you could get your name changed on legal documents, what to do in case you are harassed by the police. But they also did things like protest and picket outside of gay bars because at that time, many gay bars that were servicing a, quote, male clientele would not let trans women or trans men into the bars. And so the transvestite legal committee was protesting within the community, not just against those people out there. Another one that was completely fascinating to me was the existence of something called the transvestite information service. And this was started by a man. That's how he presented himself in all these newsletters from a small town in North Carolina and who was married, had children, but loved to wear women's clothing. When he was in women's clothing, he felt like he was finally himself or herself. Again, we don't know how they would have used pronouns. This person begins creating a newsletter and connecting with other such people all around the United States. And his, the mailing list does not, and the letters that are coming in are not just from people in New York or Chicago or San Francisco. 
they're basically married men in small towns all around the United States. The newsletter tells wonderful stories and has letters from the wives of these individuals talking about how much it meant to their husband that they were able to come out to the wife. And at home now, they can wear women's clothing openly and be accepted by wife and children. So it was just fascinating to know. And I, you know, I only had a limited amount of material about it. I would love to know how long this went on, how large it got. There's so many things we still don't know. So those were, I mean, those are two examples of who would ever know about this if these materials had not made their way to the Gerber Hart Library and Archives. Trans activism has really exploded in the last 20 years. And so in a certain sense, in terms of developing the cohesiveness and the networks that will allow for archival materials to grow and come together, it's they're perhaps in the place where the gay and lesbian community was in the 1990s. So it's going to take conscious organizing and reaching out to find these materials and preserve these materials and then use these materials to make the history available. We want to take a moment during this introductory episode and the History of Gerber Hart episode to shout out our volunteers. Here's the thing, Gerber Hart would be nothing without its volunteers. It has run all these years on the energy of volunteers, truly. And we wanted to give a shout out. We wanted to shout out our volunteers. So Jen set up this voicemail uh, where we invited volunteers to call in and share memories, thoughts, or feelings about their time at Gower Heart. So here we take a moment to thank the incredible volunteers at the Gerber Hart Library and Archive. Hi, this is Caitlin Myers. Um, I'm a former volunteer at Gerber Hart. Hi, this is Heather Brown, and I am a volunteer at the Gerber Hart. Hello, my name is Peter Lyon, and I first started helping out around Gerber Hart in the summer of 2019. Good morning, this is Roland Hansen. I was supposed to call Thursday, but it didn't happen, so today's Saturday. I just loved so much in the winter. Saturday mornings, coming into work with everyone, having a giggle with Roland, and then getting to work. I discovered Gerber Heart, and with that discovery, I just remember feeling sort of an overwhelming sense of possibility, like having that dedicated knowledge center for LGBTQ stories. An advertisement for a drag show or book launch has led me to learn about venues and community gathering spaces from past decades in a way that feels somehow immediate. It felt really special to be 
you know, looking at a part of history, um, part of my own queer history. I've just been a big fan for many years. It sort of acts as a place for people to gather, to share experiences, to learn about the past, and kind of think about the future as well. And there's just so much passion and love and knowledge and power within those walls, and I just feel honored to be you know, connected to Gerber Hart and all of the volunteers there are, are amazing. So thank you, Gerber Hart. Unboxing Queer History is co-created by me, Ari Mejia, Jen Dentel, and Aaron Bell. Theme music by Danny Robles. This episode was produced by me with sound design by Hannah Vitti. Special thanks to Aaron Bell and John D'Amelio and Rails for making this podcast possible. I also can't recommend more John's most recent book, Queer Legacies, Stories from Chicago's LGBTQ Archives. Stop by and come get it from the library or from your local bookstore. Unboxing Queer History is funded by a Rails My Library Is grant. You can find this episode and others at gerberhart.org and wherever you listen to podcasts.